Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now intending to cover 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Our context is this. Paul, in the last chapter, has pointed out to the Corinthians that the only way you're going to know anything from God is spiritually and not fleshly. He jumps on Greek philosophy and Greek rhetoric, and he says, I didn't come preaching to you that way. I came in demonstration of power with miracles and also by his word. And so in this chapter... He's going to, and he also mentioned in the last chapter about divisions among the fleshly, carnal Corinthians, the divisions, and he's going to take up on this idea of divisions in the church of 1 Corinthians 3, and he's going to talk about how do you build a church in unity, not with divisions, not with carnality, but with unity, and so he's going to talk about how apostles lay a foundation of a church and so forth. So I've entitled this section, Building the Corinthian Church in Unity. Or maybe another title is, Factions Are Tearing the Corinthian Church Apart. We start with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. Now Paul is continuing his theme from the end of the last chapter, as Adam Clark says. We look at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 2, and I'll read them now. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything. Yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. In other words, a Christian who has the Spirit can evaluate everything spiritually, but people who don't have the Spirit don't understand things of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. They can't judge the Christian. They don't know what the Christian's talking about. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so he's saying, okay, that's how it ought to be. But now in verse chapter 3, verse 1, uh, I couldn't talk to you that way. As spiritual people who have the mind of Christ who understand the things of the Lord, because you are in the flesh. Now, this is one of many times where Paul contrasts flesh with spirit. Think of Romans, Romans 7. He talks about flesh all the time, sins of the body, sins of the flesh. And then he goes into Romans 8 and talks about the Holy Spirit. Do a, If you do a computer search in a concordance on flesh and spirit, it's amazing how many times the two are contrasted. Now, here he's obviously speaking of Christians because he says, I say obviously, actually it's controverted by some people, but to me it's obvious. He says, brothers... I, I am not able to talk to you as people, as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I've got to talk to you as fleshly people. You're not, you're not really understanding things. You're, you're a babe in Christ. In Christ sounds like a brother. And when he calls them brothers, that also sounds like a brother. Now, Paul does mention in the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, he does mention carnality among uh, as uh, attributed to some people, but it's not clear whether it's an unbelieving fleshly person or a believing Christian fleshly person. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it, since it is evaluated spiritually. Now, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, the unbeliever. The ESV has the natural person. The NIV has the man without the spirit. That could apply to carnal Christians. The Greek word is sukikos, or a form of sukikos, and that means fleshly. And that could be Christians or non-Christians. And so, therefore, we have a controversy over, can a carnal Christian exist? Well, again, I've already said, it seems to me, obviously, if he says brothers... Your babes in Christ. What is brothers and what part of babe brothers and in Christ do we not understand? So well, let's look at this argument. Is there such a thing as a carnal Christian? Now, I'm telling. I just had somebody in church last Sunday said that he believed there was no such thing. I look on the internet 
And the first article I read, this is obvious. It cannot be that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. I say, well, but of course he didn't deal with this verse right here that says, brothers, in Christ, you're acting fleshly. Let me read you a section of that web page that I just referenced. Quote, this is by a man named Ricky Roem. I don't know him. Within that local church, there were some people who trusted Christ, lived holy, and walked in the Spirit. Other people who were not part of Christ were among this same body of believers. They also attended the local church at Corinth, but they were carnal, not saved, and behaving like a bunch of little babies. Well, that's the best argument we can come up with here, to say that carnal Christians don't exist. They were acting like a bunch of little babies, and those were non-Christians in the church. They were acting like little babies. Well, first of all, I don't believe there were that many non-Christians in the church. Paul is talking to the whole church. He's not talking to the non-believers in the church. And besides, he says, babes in Christ. He didn't just say that you act like a bunch of little babies. He said you act like a bunch of little babies in Christ. What part of in Christ do we not understand? But anyway, we'll go on with the argument that there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. We can quote this scripture, 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Therefore, if someone keeps on sinning, that way he's not a believer. And then James 2.18, I will show you my faith by my works. Therefore, if a Christian is saved, then he will do works. Well, okay, we have a little problem here. How do we reconcile 1 Corinthians 3.1, which is obviously talking about carnal Christians, and 1 John 3.6 says that anyone who keeps on sinning, that would sound like a carnal Christian, has neither known him or seen him. Well, we'll get to the reconciliation in just a minute. Now, let's look at the argument that there is such thing as a carnal Christian. First of all, let's look at some scriptures, Galatians 5:16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, this implies that it's possible for a Christian to gratify the desires of the flesh. Why would Paul exhort the Christians, don't walk, don't gratify the desires of the flesh, if they couldn't gratify the desires of the flesh? If they couldn't gratify the desires of the flesh, why worry about it? Why put out an exhortation against that possibility. 1 Corinthians 3.1 says this. Well, I just quoted that a million times. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. Well, that's a slam dunk. Here's another logical argument about in favor of the idea that carnal Christians exist. If carnal Christians don't exist, then all Christians are sinlessly perfect. Because let's face it, all of us are carnal to some degree, even the Apostle Paul. He was a carnal Christian. Anybody that sins is a carnal Christian. 1 John 1, eight. if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, if we don't have carnal Christians, what other option is there? A perfectly sinless Christian? Because every Christian in this life is carnal to some extent. Now, I know why people don't like the idea that there's a carnal Christian. It's because people abuse the doctrine. If you look at a graph of sanctification, it looks like the stock market, up, down, up, down, but the upward trend is, the trend line is upward. Well, when the stock market is at zero, that's when the person is not saved at all. The sanctification chart is at zero, and then it goes up and down. We're partially carnal, partially spiritual. Then we get to the top, we get glorified, and we're completely spiritual and 0% carnal. Well, it's all right to point to somebody in that up and down graph to say that that person is carnal because he's not perfectly glorified yet. But if you go back down to the bottom of the graph at the zero point where the line is flat to the left, before a person is saved and say, that's a carnal Christian. Now you're looking at a, a non-Christian and saying he's a carnal Christian, when actually he's not a, a carnal Christian, he's a carnal non-Christian. I mean, after all, if you put a seed in the ground, it's going to produce a little bit of fruit because it's alive. If it's alive at all, 
How about the scriptures? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're going to see some good works if somebody gets saved. You're not going to see zero works. James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So that faith doesn't even exist if there's no works. So you've got to see some works. Otherwise, you have a carnal non-Christian, not a carnal Christian. Now, what the problem is, is that you have hard cases sometimes. You know, every Christian can point out areas of carnality in their life and areas of where God has worked on their on their flesh and, and created some sanctification, some transformation, you know, the normal Christian sanctified life. But then you get some hard cases and you think, well, now, is this a carnal non-Christian or is this a carnal Christian? Let me give you two real-life examples. I watched a documentary the other day. Here's a girl. She's raised in church in a Christian school, and she's by Christian parents. She goes to church every Sunday. She has a Christian boyfriend, and the camera shows them studying the book of Joshua. And she's going, oh, look at this, look at this, oh, this is great, you know. Joshua. Well, she looked like a Christian to me. But then, as it goes on, she decides she's going to start working as a porn star. She grows up, and she becomes a young adult. She starts working as a porn star. I mean, I'm not talking about watching that stuff. She was doing it. Having sex on screen with people she didn't know. Now, that's carnal, folks. She gave it up to marry a Christian boyfriend. She tried to live a straight life, and then finances got tight. She went back to it. Now, is that person a Christian, or is that a non-Christian? How about this? My favorite singer and songwriter of all times, Hank Williams. He drank like a fish. He cheated on Audrey, his wife. He was obviously living a non-Christian life. But, hey, he wrote dozens of fantastic Christian songs. He wrote, I Saw the Light. But when did he write, I Saw the Light? He was drunk in the back seat of his mother's car as his mother was driving him to the airport. She looks up and she sees the big beacon light up there. And, so, and she says, leans over the back and says, Hank, we're almost there. She was driving from out of town to the Montgomery airport. She says, Hank, we're almost there. Hank looks up, sees the light. Fifteen minutes, he writes this song, I Saw the Light, which is a wonderful song. And if you, I wandered so aimless life with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. And then Jesus came like a stranger in the night, praised the Lord, I saw the light. I mean, you can't get better hymns than this. And the other two songs are, or the other two verses are just as good. Well, is he a Christian or not? And then when his life was falling apart, Audrey had, had presented him with a cold, cold heart. Hank wrote that fantastic song that Tony Bennett started out with, Cold, Cold Heart. It's all about Audrey. And he goes out and he, and he stays in the apartment with a friend. He's miserable. And then he starts drinking again. He'd gotten sober and he started drinking again. And then he's on the road all the time and his back's hurting him. And he's taking, going to doctors for drugs. Now, that might have been for medical reasons, but he's sousing himself with alcohol. And Minnie Pearl was with him one time trying to keep him straight between performances. And she said something to the effect that the light is the end of the tunnel. And Hank said, there's no light for me. And then another time... As he was driving, I think he was in a car driving with somebody, and, and, and he said, I see Jesus coming down the road for old Hank. So, was he saved or not? I always thought, he assumed he wasn't saved. Then I saw his granddaughter, Holly Williams, who is obviously saved, and she gave words to the effect that she thought he was saved, but he was just living a sinful life. He was a carnal Christian. She didn't use those words. Now, of course, she's related to him. It's his her grandfather. She's biased. I know that. But again... That's a, that, to me, it's a hard question. Well, why does the problem rise so often? Because both a non-Christian and a carnal Christian exhibit unregenerate behavior. And if you get a, enough unregenerate behavior, you start to wonder. 
Now, in my humble opinion, it's best to take take an agnostic position on the question of their salvation. The person may have never been saved in the first place who's saying that he's a Christian. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So some people get attached to the church. They like the music. They like the feeling. They like the atmosphere. But they're not really Christians. And Hank could have been, he's around church all his life. He was in the Bible Belt. Everybody's a Christian down here in the South, you know. So he just might have been influenced by the music and knew the words, but he didn't have Jesus in his heart. Could be. Might not have ever been saved in the first place. On the other hand, maybe he got saved and got off into sin. And then sin, like as deceitful as it is, grabbed him and dragged him down. Now, there's one thing when people, when carnal Christians are acting that way, we can know. But there's some things we, can, we might not know whether they're saved or not, but we can know that they aren't qualified for leadership in the church. We can know that their sin should be confronted and should not be tolerated. We can know that their sin should not be participated in, and then after that, just leave it up to God. I don't know. It's none of my business whether they're saved or not. Paul says that they were acting like babies. It was absurd for Christians to be claiming that they were able to distinguish preacher from preacher when they didn't understand the basic principles of the faith, as Adam Clark said. Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. How can babies? Babies can't tell one adult from another, hardly. All right, now let me come back to the verse in 1 John 3 that I quoted used by those who say there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, I would take that to mean that if somebody claims to be a Christian and then exhibits no fruit at all in his life and he keeps on sinning all the way for for a lifetime, well, he never was saved. But what happens when it's somebody who does show evidence for a period of time and then keeps on sinning? Well, I'll give you a good example. Uh, There was a man who I went to elementary school and junior high school with, and he got saved. I say he got saved ostensibly. And he was going around. He was preaching the gospel. He baptized my sister. He, I, I remember going to places with him and listening to him. We would pray for people. I would hear him speak in tongues. Oh, yeah, well, they could have been demonic. I don't think they were. We, I, we prayed. I remember this uh, man who's, who, who is then my age now. This was 30, 40 years ago. But he had a bad back problem. I prayed. I felt the power of God hot as fire, go through the man's back, and he straightens up and says, my back's all right, you know, that kind of thing. And then he just got off into, he borrowed money from a a syndicate, a crime syndicate, got involved in a a business. He started smoking marijuana. He goes out to Hollywood. He actually ends up in a few Hollywood movies. He comes to my high school reunion with some bimbo with a dress up to her buttocks. (laughs) So, I mean... So, you know, Peter, he, when he was in Cornelius' house and he saw them all speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit, he saw the Holy Spirit fall on them, but you know, you can't see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not visible. So what he saw was them speaking in tongues, and Peter said, just as us with the beginning. So I assume I saw this man do that. So I, that to me, that's the only visible evidence I have, plus the, the preaching, the solid preaching he was doing and the solid evangelism he was doing. I would consider that some fruit. came from somewhere. But then he backslides and spends the whole rest of his life to the end of his life. He says, I don't believe in that Christian stuff anymore. And he, he lingers a horrible, sickly death lying on a bed. Can't even get out of his bed. You know, I believe Christians can do things like that and end up being taken out of this world. How about the, the man in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother? 
didn't Paul say something to the effect, uh, you need to kick him out of the church so that he can be saved as, as by fire? In other words, his flesh might be burnt up, but his, that his soul might be saved. I believe Jesus can do that to his erring children. But I, I'm not going to go so far as to say they're not saved. But if the man never, ever exhibits anything, I've got a brother who has never, who, who raised his hand in a Billy Zioli film, evangelistic film, at the, at the beach. And from that day forth, he exhibited not one single sign of believing in Jesus. And so I assume he's not saved because I never saw any fruit. Now, maybe he had some somewhere, but I don't think so. So it's a hard question, but I think we just need to not worry about it too much and just assume if somebody's living like sin, we try to exhort them to live right. And if you're not sure they're saved, well, then ask them. Just get them to confess. If Hey, can you confess that Jesus is your Lord? Get them to do that. And then say, okay, well, if you're if he's your Lord, you need to live like he's, he's your Lord. All right, now we go to 1 Corinthians 3, 2 through 5. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still fleshly, carnal, carnal Christians. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? Now, you see, Paul makes a comparison. He makes a comparison between unbelievers, who act carnal, and believers, who are also living carnally, and so they appear to be like unbelievers. And that's why they're so hard to tell apart sometimes. Verse 4, For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not unspiritual people, carnal people? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. And when he says servants, he means they're not big shots, they're slaves. They're servants. Servants have lowly status, so quit giving Paul and Apollos high status when you need to give Jesus high status and Jesus' servants low status. Paul says, I gave you milk to drink. What does that mean? That means the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ. The author of Hebrews uses the same analogy, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose, whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So, Paul is writing to people who are content to follow leaders, Apollos and Paul, Cephas, etc., instead of Christ. And so they are by definition fleshly, carnal. Paul is referring here to what he also referred to in chapter 1, verse 12. He said this, what I'm saying is this, each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. And he mentions this unfortunate tendency of the Corinthians. He mentions it once again here in chapter 3. Now, there's an interesting statement that Paul makes that might be easily passed over unnoticed. Paul says in verse 5, they are servants, Paul and Apollos, through whom you believed and each has the role the Lord has given. In other words, God said, okay, Paul, I want you to plant the church and okay, you, Apollos, I want you to water the church. God decides what we're going to do. And maybe One's role in the church is merely to help people. Well, hey, that's important because the body of Christ, the church, cannot be built up without everybody doing his thing, the role that the Lord has given. And don't step out of your role because if you try to do something you're not qualified to do, how many preachers do you know that are really evangelists or apostles? They should go out evangelizing or starting churches or go on, you know, going overseas, missionaries. But no, they got to be a church because that's the way they get their salary and that's the way the church system is set it up. And they're unhappy because they're not doing the role that the Lord has given them. We go to verses 6 through 8. 
Paul continues, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God is something. The workers are nothing. Now the one, when I say nothing compared to God, they're nothing. Obviously they have worth in God's eyes, but they, we don't need to build them up and act like they're something in our eyes. Verse 8, now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So if your job is not to start a church, well, you're going to get a reward. Just do what God's role that God's given you. Paul says he planted. Well, when, when did he plant the Corinthian church? That was recorded in Acts 18, verses 4 through 11. I'm going to go over this a little bit so, so, so we see how the Corinthian church got started. This is on the second missionary journey. Paul stayed there for 18 months. Verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So he starts out by evangelizing Jewish Corinthians. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his robe and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. I mean, the things were so tough in Corinth, Jesus had to come to Paul in a vision to keep him going. Jesus continues, For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul did a great work in planting the church at Corinth. But God gave the growth, because Apollos watered the church. When did Apollos go there? Well, on the third journey, which is a few years later, at the beginning of the third journey, Paul stops in Ephesus. And meanwhile, Apollos had left Ephesus and gone back to Corinth, and he has been working in Corinth, Acts 18, verse 27 through 28. When he wanted to cross over, that's he, Apollos, to cross over from Ephesus to Achaia, that's Corinth, Greece, the brothers wrote to the disciples urging them to welcome him. The brothers at Ephesus wrote to the disciples in Corinth urging them to welcome Apollos after he arrived. Apollos arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So Apollos greatly helped the Corinthian churches who had believed through grace. So Apollos is instructing and teaching and encouraging. And he's evangelizing too because in Acts 18.28 it says this, For Luke says this, For he, Apollos, vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Now each, Paul says in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 3, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, stay in your role. Do what you're supposed to do. What kind of rewards can you get? Well, honor, honor and respect from people in the church, from men. Or it could be a reward from God. I think it's probably a reward from God, not reward from men. And that could be rewards in the, in the worker's lifetime. Or it could be a reward in the worker's time of glory in heaven. doesn't really say. doesn't matter. The point is... You work building the church of God. Remember, the theme of this passage is building the church of God properly. You'll get a reward if you build the church. Church building is very important, much more important than nation building. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3, For we are God's co-workers. We, he's referring to him in Apollos, we are God's co-workers. We work together. We're not trying to compete with one another. We're co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, Paul uses two of the, his famous metaphors for the church of Christ. He's already talking about a planting and watering, so God's field makes sense. He's also going to talk about God's building. He's going to switch to another metaphor a little bit later on. The Corinthians are a farm. God owns the farm. 
And that includes the field and the buildings. So you can put the two together, field and building, because farms do have buildings. It doesn't matter who works on the farm. It takes it takes more than one person to build a farm, to to plant a to create a farm, to plant the crops and to build the buildings on the farm. Now Paul's going to use another metaphor for the Corinthian church. He's going to depict the church as a temple later on in verses 16 and 17. We'll get that later. So he switches metaphors a lot in here. The metaphors are easy to understand. Here's a good quote from Clark concerning the building metaphor. No man in in viewing a fine building extols the quarryman that dug up the the stones, the hewer that cut and squared them, the mason that placed them in the wall, the woodman that hewed down the timber, the carpenter that squared and jointed it, etc. But who do they honor? The architect who planned it. And of course that architect is Jesus. That's who they honor. I mean, even in the real world, it's the architects, the guy that gets on TV. Not the carpenters. Now, the carpenters are necessary. The building wouldn't get built. The brick masons are necessary, but they're not the ones that get the honor. So let's give the honor to Jesus and meanwhile just work as humble workmen to build the building, to build the church. Now, notice that it takes work to minister in God's kingdom because Paul calls him and Apollos co-workers. Church doesn't happen automatic, folks. You get into church work, it's work. I like to watch me. He calls it the church and the work. And he uses the word work, at least the English translation, he uses the word work instead of minister. Ministry, you know, well, I have a ministry, it sounds so religious. But the, I like the the English word that says work instead of ministry, work. What's your church work? What do you do to work for the kingdom? Good labor for the kingdom is quite rewarding. What is, Paul says, I honor those who labor at teaching, I think he says, when he writes First Timothy, who labor, who work. And notice as the workers working together, co-workers. You know, in China, I noticed that they would never use the word, or rarely, if I ever heard it, I don't know, the word, pa- I did hear pastor every now and then, but usually you didn't hear that. You heard the word pas- uh, co-worker, and they didn't use the word apostle either, or missionary. It was co-worker. They were sending missionaries out to the far west. They would call them co-workers, apostolic work team, which consisted of co-workers. Now, of course, they had leaders, but they didn't give each other titles because they were co-workers. They were working together. Verse 10, Paul continues, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on it. So he's still referring to him in Apollos. He said, I laid the foundation because I came in here and started the church, as recorded in Acts 18. So I laid the foundation, and I was a skilled master builder. And he was. And he was not modest enough not to mention that. However... To make sure that he's not sounding too cocky here, he prefaces his statement by saying, according to God's grace that was given to me. That's how I became a skilled master builder. Paul was very careful whenever he had to state what a good job he was doing. And he's going to have to do that to the Corinthians as we get on into the book. We'll see that because he had a lot of opposition there and he had to assert his apostolic authority and gifts and skills. And he would do that, but he would always preface it with, according to God's grace. And, of course, the other, the another who was building on it, was he's probably referring to Apollos. According to the NIV study Bible, John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, it says it's Apollos and all the other people besides Apollos who built the Corinthian church. I don't know what Paul meant, but it doesn't matter. Obviously, there are other people besides him that, that make the church be fruitful and strong. We go to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 12. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, I guess I better read 13 and 14. 
each one's work will become obvious. I'll, I'll read verse 13a. All right, so no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. You ever gone to a work site and seen a foundation? Once that foundation is dug, I used to do construction work, and I actually worked on the foundation of my house. There is nothing to work. Oh, I hated it. Gosh, you have to dig ditch down in the ground, and then you pour concrete down in the ditch, and then you put Greek uh, brick pilings on that concrete foundation. And by golly, once that foundation is in there, you ain't going to tear it up. It costs more than the house itself to build a found to, to tear the foundation up. So if I come in and say, you know, I don't like that work. I think I want to build another house here. What do you do? You tear the house down and leave the foundation and build a new house on the same foundation. And so when Paul says no one can lay any other foundation than one has been laid down, he's right. You don't Builders don't do that. And so he's using that homely metaphor to say that, hey, the foundation is Jesus Christ. I laid, I worked on the foundation as a skilled master builder. He says, well, he's well, actually, he says in verse 10, he says, I have laid a foundation and the foundation is Jesus Christ. So the metaphor is I'm the master builder that's laying the foundation, but it's Jesus who's really the foundation. So what he's saying is I'm preaching Jesus to you. He's the foundation of your, of your church. Now, He's talking about building on that foundation. That would refer to Apollos, Cephas, whoever came along and, and built on the foundation. He has he mentions six things, and they can be divided into two categories. The first is the first three are gold, silver, and costly stones. And that category is a category of something that cannot be burned up by fire. And then the second category is wood, hay, or straw, and that is something that can be burned up by fire. And so he's making an easy metaphor here. He's saying, look, if you're going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ when you're working in your church, don't do it with division and strife. That's wood, hay, or straw, and that's going hood, wood, hay, or straw, and that's going to get burnt up. But do it with gold, silver, and costly stones. As the NIV Study Bible says, it, a precious, durable work that stands the test of divine judgment. Adam Clark says, pure and wholesome doctrine. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, pure doctrine and pure persons. Poor, pure people. I think it's obvious when we talk about laying on a foundation with gold, silver, and costly stones, what we talk about. And by the way, this is talking about specifically building a church. Now, a lot of people apply this to their Christian life in general because people don't ever take the, rarely take the context of a passage and they always t apply scriptures devotionally. Well, that's fine, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's an application. That's not the interpretation of this passage. Now, the wood, hay, or straw. That which will not stand the test of fire, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. The NIV Study Bible says that this wood, hay, or straw is symbolic of weak, insipid teaching and life. Adam Clark says it's false doctrine. Here's some examples that the Corinthians may have been toying with, examples of false doctrine. That there's no resurrection of the body. That a man may marry his stepmother upon his father's death. That the gospel included the Mosaic law. That fornication may have been okay. That frequenting heathen temples and eating their idol meat was perfectly all right. We'll see this as we go through the book. All these issues came up. That would be wood, hay, or straw. So, but anyway, it's good doctrine, good people. That's what laying on a good, on a solid foundation. That's laying on that solid foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, and costly stones. We go now to verses 13 through 14, 1 Corinthians 3. I'm in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up the end of verse 12. Let me read verse 12. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the, hay, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. 
So fire's not going to burn up gold and precious stones and silver. Actually, as a matter of fact, fire will melt it if it gets hot enough. But basically, fire's not going to melt a diamond, though. But Paul's not being picky about the metaphor here. He just said, you know, it's going to stand the fire. And so Paul is saying that the work that workers do in church work, it's going to be obvious. You see a, a good church, somebody's laid a good foundation. Sometimes they last two or three generations. I've been to churches in China. And they've been around forever in the midst of all that persecution. Been to several churches like that. And they talk about how some missionary came over in the 1800s, talked to him about Christ. And Chanteau China was a, a German doctor that came over in the 1800s, and the church was still going strong. I met some people in this church. And I remember thinking, this is, this is quite remarkable. Fire of Chinese communist persecution didn't destroy that church. Now there's some different options as to what fire might stand for. The NIV Study Bible says it stands for God's judgment. Well, it could be. Could be literally the fire at the end of the world. Of course, I don't really believe that there's fire at the end of the world, but that's an, another long philosophical, uh, theological discussion. But John Gill denies that it, even if there's fire at the end of the, of the world, he denies that that's what Paul's talking about here because there's a problem here. If, if the quality of the Corinthian church or the workers in the Corinthian church or, or any church worker back then, if the quality of that church is going to be judged, it's going to survive a fire. Well, that means it would have to survive all the way to the end of time. Well, how many churches you know survived to the end of time? They sure didn't in the seven churches of Revelation. They're all Muslim now in Turkey. So does that mean, well, whoever built those churches, they 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 failed the test of fire at the end of the world? I don't think so. I think John Gill's exactly right there. I don't think he's talking about fire at the end of the world. Adam Clark has uh, fire standing for the fire that burned up Jerusalem in 87. And I'm an Orthodox Protestant, and I tend to like those kind of interpretations, but I don't see how this could be very relevant for the Corinthian church. Their church is going to stand until Jerusalem falls. How's that going to really affect them that much? Now, they did have a lot of persecution from the Jews, but the fire that burnt down Jerusalem ended the persecution of the Jews. It didn't increase the persecution of the Jews. I don't understand how that could be it. Jameson Fossen Brown says the fire that Paul's talking about here is... A metaphorical allusion to God's judgment. The church will reveal the judgment of God. Because after all, judgment begins with the household of God. That's a possibility. Josh Richards, an internet writer, says that Paul was referring to the fact that ancient buildings often burn down. And so he's basically, basically talking about his metaphor here. He's saying, look, if you have a building, fire burns down, you're going to see the foundation. Excuse me, you're going to see the the building, if it's built of wood, which most of them were back then, it burns down. You, you're going to see that this was not of God. But if it, if you could imagine a building built of stones and diamonds, it would survive a building fire like you often see around you. Well, that's possible. And especially since Paul is talking about a building, he's using the building metaphor right now. To me, this is my humble opinion, Paul is referring to the trials and tribulations of life. Each one's work will become obvious because it will be revealed by fire if a church goes through the common persecutions and tribulations that all churches go through. And if it survives it, well, it was built on a good foundation. That makes good sense to me. I don't think it's the end of the world fire. I don't think it's 8070 fire. And it could be God's judgment fire, but it also could be fire coming from the devil, coming from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whatever fire is referred to here, the church will survive it if it's laid on a good foundation and built properly on that foundation. Now, what is the day? Each one's work will become obvious in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3, for the day will disclose it. Well, the NIV study Bible says the judgment day at the end of time. 
Well, again, how does man's work survive until then so as to get a reward? Paul says, if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward, for the day will disclose it. I'm jumping the order a little bit. Well, how is the day going to disclose that your, how is judgment day at the end of the world going to disclose that your church survived? The church didn't survive. No church survives for 2,000 plus years like the churches in Revelation. Well, maybe Paul meant the church will survive for a reasonable length of time, and then when the judgment day comes around, God will give you a reward for that. Well, that's not what he says. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. It sounds like the time of giving the reward is coterminous with the time of the survival. John Gill says the day is not a day of judgment, but it's the day of the gospel. The gospel will disclose it. As the gospel spread, people look and say, oh, there's a church that's preaching the gospel. Perhaps. I like this solution myself. This is my personal opinion again. How about the day of judgment on the individual church whose foundation Paul has laid down? In other words, if you build a church, when the judgment comes, the day of judgment comes on your church, which it will come, moral failure of the leaders, persecution from the government, whatever it is, the day of judgment has come on your church. And when that day of judgment comes, if your church survives it, then it was built on a good foundation. Okay, a lot of ifs about what the fire in the day is there, but we, the general point is, though we understand the general point, you lay on the foundation well, you get a reward. Again, it's talking about co-workers. You do this. You can apply it to Christians, but the immediate reference is to co-workers. Now, we, these co-workers who build properly on the foundation of Jesus, they're going to get a reward. Where are they going to get the reward, and when are they going to get it? John Gill says from the churches of Christ here on earth, they're going to get a reward. Or he suggests that. John Gill also suggests the reward comes from Christ in heaven. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the reward is given to the apostles, and that reward is the converts that are benefited by the gold, silver, and costly stones that the apostles laid on the foundation. So the Corinthian church is in itself the reward to the apostles. That's an interesting idea. Here's some scriptures that kind of support that idea. Second Corinthians 1.14, as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. You are our reason for pride, so you are the reward because we're proud of you. We apostles are proud of you. First Thessalonians 2.19, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at, our, at his coming? Is it not you? So the Corinthians themselves are the reward, the reward to the apostles. So in other words, when Paul says, if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. And the reward is the church that he planted that's still going strong. That is a reward. Paul, it's obvious Paul was happy about his churches when they were doing good. And he was agonized when the churches weren't doing good. The churches themselves are the reward. That's not a bad idea. Or it just could be some unnamed reward in heaven. I'm not going to stand on a hill and defend that to the death. Just give you some options. We go to verse, 1 Corinthians 3.15. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved, yet it will be like an escape through fire. Now, this is a good verse for people who think that people's getting their works burned up means they're going to die and going to hell. No, it says right here, the work is lost, but he will be saved. There it is, plain black and white. The guy who screws up and laying down that bad foundation, he's not going to lose his salvation. He's going to lose his works, but not his salvation. He will escape through fire. In other words, the fire burns his clothes off, but he'll get out. But naked, but he will escape. That reminds me, I saw a Pulitzer Prize winning photo, and it was really kind of sad because uh, in the Vietnam War, a, Vietnam, a Vietnamese airplane made a mistake and bombed a friendly village. 
and it was a napalm bombing, and the fire was going through the village. And this little nine-year-old girl was in the village. The fire burnt her clothes off, and she was completely naked, running away from the fire, screaming. And the photographer happened to see it and took a picture of it and won a Pulitzer Prize. She was upset about it because she said she was humiliated and degraded by it. But she got saved, if I remember correctly. I think that's why I was reading the article when she was an adult, which was pretty cool. But she escaped through fire. She escaped with nothing. No clothes. No house. No belongings. Nothing. Well, that's sad. But it doesn't mean you're going to hell. That, that woman was still alive. She still functioned. She was saved. She escaped through fire. Now, there's a question here. The one who escapes through fire loses everything but himself is saved. I think the context tells us Paul's talking about co-workers, people who are working in the church. Some people think it could be Paul might have been thinking of the Corinthians themselves not the co-workers that were building the church, but the church itself. They were doing a lousy job of building on Jesus' foundation, and they were doing a lousy job in adding to the work, the good work that Paul and Apollos had done. And so, hey, they're going to lose all the stuff that they've been doing in that church, but they will be saved, even if their church gets burnt up. I don't think so. I think it's referring to the co-workers. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you yourselves know that you're God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Sanctuary, of course, is a temple, as the NIV translates it. Sanctuary is a place where God lives. So he switches the metaphor now from a field. From, well, he's gone from field, and he's mentioned a building. Well, he's still talking about a building, but it's a special kind of building, a sanctuary, a temple building. And he says the Spirit of God lives in you. That you is who mean plural. So he's saying, and he says, don't you yourselves... That's, well, that's obvious in English is plural. Know that you, that's plural, and that the Spirit of God lives in you, plural, who mean. So he's talking to the Corinthians plurally. He says, you plurally are a temple. You corporately are a temple. The whole church is a temple. The Spirit of God lives in you, the Corinthian church, not in you individually. Now, so many American Christians, because we're so individualistic, say, well, see there, that means the Spirit of God lives in the individual. Well, as a matter of fact, there is a verse that you can use to prove that where the Spirit of God does live in the individual temple, the individual Christian who is a temple, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. That's when Paul's talking about joining Christians, or not Christians, but people in Corinth joining themselves to prostitutes. And he's saying you're defiling your temple where the Holy Spirit lives if you do that. So that's obviously referring to an individual temple. But here, in 1 Corinthians 3, it's talking about the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. There is no physical building, folks. There were no church buildings for the first 300 years of the Christian church. The only church building there was was the Christian church. Not building, but the living stones joined together in a sanctuary, in a temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit was the church, the people themselves. And I wish like heck it was true today, but it's not because now we're building crystal cathedrals and all the cathedrals in France and in, I don't know, it's just, no, that's not the way it was. The Spirit of God lives in this Corinthian temple, as John Gill eloquently puts it, a spirit of regeneration, sanctification, faith, and adoption as the earnest and pledge of their future glory. Now, notice Paul is saying all these wonderful things about the Corinthian church, the same Corinthian church which was riven with factions, which abused the Lord's Supper, uh, ignored the poor people, got drunk at the Lord's Supper, refused to discipline a man sleeping with his stepmother, got in all kind of disputes over 
eating idol meat and so on and so on and so on. But nonetheless, Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He never loses hope for his erring and wandering church, the Corinthian church. We go to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll finish up this audio. If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you are. Now, Paul is referring to all these people who are who have split the church up into all kind of factions. That's who's destroying God's sanctuary. And Paul says, you know, you and, and Paul says, you keep that up, you destroy God's sanctuary, God's going to destroy you. But God's sanctuary is holy, and that's what what you are. Now, when he says destroy, if you if Paul is referring to these factious Christians who are following leaders, it doesn't mean he will eternally destroy them. It means he's going to destroy their works, just like he's already been talking about burning up works. So that's the idea. He's going to destroy their works. His ministry, his life, you know, his life might even be ruined, but it doesn't mean he's going to hell. So that's what Paul's referring to. The NIV Study Bible says that the anyone there, if anyone destroys God's sanctuary, Paul is referring to the false factional teachers. Now, now the NIV Study Bible says they're not believers. They're false teachers at Corinth. We know they're false teachers at Corinth. As we get on in the book, we'll see that Paul takes them up. So he could be referring to the false teachers who are destroying God's sanctuary, non-Christians. Or he could be referring to the carnal Christians, the divisive factional Christians who are destroying God's sanctuary. He could be referring to them both. John Gill takes the opinion that's talking about the false teachers and that destroy means destroy the false teacher soul and body in hell. Again, this it could be. But it doesn't mean anybody's going to lose their salvation. Now, in verse 15, we had the lousy teacher is saved. If you remember the one that built wrongly on the foundation, he escaped through fire. His works were burnt up, but he himself shall be saved, but he shall escape by fire. And so if we're still sticking with that context, we get to verse 17. Then it's talking about a Christian teacher who's destroying God's sanctuary. He's going to be escaped by fire and still be saved, but he's destroying the sanctuary. He might be saved, but the sanctuary is not. But then it says God will destroy him. Well, then that can't mean... God will send him to hell because he said previously in verse 15, this man will be saved that does this. If, however, Paul is talking about non-believing teachers here, and then we can assume that God will destroy him in hell. Serious thing, tear down the church of God. And there's a lot of people try to do it. I pity them because when they face the judgment for what they've done for trying to destroy Jesus' lambs, there's going to be literally hell to pay. Let me make one more comment about verse 17 before we close it down. Paul, in this verse, tells the Corinthians corporately as a church that they are holy. Because he says, for God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you are. That could refer to holy. Holy, you're holy, and that is what you are. Or it could be referred to God's sanctuary, and that is what you are. Either way, a sanctuary is where God lives. So God's living in a very sinful church. Or the Corinthians are holy, and that is what you are. That's something to remember. If you think that no such thing as carnal Christianity can exist, how do you explain this carnal Christian church being called holy? Brothers, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 17. In verses 18 through 23, the end of chapter 3, Paul is going to go back and reprise his theme of not being worldly wise. He's going to mention also the division of Paul and Apollos and Cephas. He's going to kind of summarize the thing, the idea that you can't be wise in natural wisdom and build a proper church. And then in chapter 4, he's going to talk about the ministry of apostles. We'll finish up chapter 3 in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.